Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Kolf. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Before we get started, I have a quick ask. If you're enjoying All the Wiser and the stories we bring you, I hope you will consider rating, reviewing, or subscribing to the podcast. It goes a long way in helping other people discover the podcast and the stories we share. Thank you for considering and thank you for listening. Today's interview is with Dave, David, or Dopey Dave. I can't tell you his last name because he will not tell me, the internet, or any of his thousands of listeners. Dave is a former hardcore drug addict, and he's also a really successful podcaster. In spite of a happy childhood and a solid shot at a career in entertainment, Dave started using heroin on a daily basis in his 20s. For the next two decades, he lived in a dark world of addiction. His life was one of drug-fueled nights and more rehab centers and relapses than he can count. On a smoking porch on one of his many rehab stints, he met a fellow addict named Chris. At four months clean and sober, Dave decided to launch a podcast with Chris, the Dopey Podcast. They were both really funny, had a good chemistry, and more combined crazy drug addict stories than you could ever imagine. The podcast grew quickly, became a part of their own process of recovery, and was keeping countless addicts around the world company. The Dopey Podcast had some agreements. One, they would both remain anonymous. And two, to be a host or a guest on their podcast, you had to be in the process of recovery, clean and sober. What Dave did not realize was Chris was no longer on that path. And when he didn't show up for one of their recordings, he went looking for his friend and co-host and realized that he had relapsed, overdosed, and died. He bravely picked up the microphone and shared the news and his pain with the world. When I interviewed him, he was on the tail end of recovering from the coronavirus. He shares why he finds a strong connection with the pandemic, because it feels a lot like the early days of recovery when your future is uncertain and you feel alone. He is very funny, drops a lot of F-bombs, and is a shining example of the human potential to change our lives for the better and create a bright future that looks nothing like your past. Here's today's interview with the Bansky of podcasting, Dopey Dave. Hi, Dave. Hi, Kimmy. Welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you. 
First, I'm going to start by sharing with our audience that you currently are in New York and have COVID. Yes. The coronavirus. Yes. I'm at the tail end of it. You know, I still have no taste or smell and, uh, you know, weird chills here and there, but I'm mostly through it. But you were like real deal in your bed, like severe symptoms. Correct. Well, I mean, not compared to people who are on a ventilator in the hospital and can't breathe. I had a really high fever. I had a really sore throat, but luckily I didn't have to be hospitalized and my lungs were pretty totally clear the whole time. So I I had it and I definitely had it. I was tested positive for it and I had a high fever and a sore throat, but like, I don't know. There's so many people in the hospital who can't breathe because their lungs are full of fluid and I was not one of them. I'm glad you weren't, and I'm glad you're on the mend. Yeah, me too. Thank you. And before we get started, I'm going to call you out. Yeah. You and I were emailing and just called to check in, talk about doing this, and you fully thought and expected that I had a British accent. It's true. I, I don't know why I thought that. I thought I thought All the Wiser was an English podcast, and I thought... I thought, I, and I didn't read the word Kimmy as Kimmy. I read it as Kimi. Kimi. So you in my head were this exotic British woman and it was a British podcast. That's just, you know, it's, what do I know? I'm an idiot. I promised you that I would do this interview in a British accent, but... So far you have not come through. Yes. Unlike Lindsay Lohan and Madonna, I have not mastered one. Dave. All right. We're going to dive into this. How would you introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, first of all, I never would call myself Dopey Dave. But secondly, I would say my name is Dave or David, but I would never, I I rarely introduce myself as Dave. I don't even know how it happened on Dopey that I became Dave, but I would just say that I'm David and I do a podcast called Dopey and I'm a drug addict in recovery. Tell me about the backdrop of your childhood growing up. I had a great childhood. I grew up Jewish in Manhattan. Both my parents were teachers and I grew up in a like kind of public housing in Chelsea. I lived in a beautiful apartment that was public, you know, so the rent was super cheap. And I went to one of the best schools in the world, which was also public. So we didn't pay for it. Like I had, I had a really nice life growing up. And as a teenager, who was David? on the inside versus how the world was experiencing you, how you were perceived on the outside? Well, I think on the inside, I think lots of addicts feel lonely or alone. I I just happened to have this very, very good group of friends. So like when I was with them, I rarely felt lonely or alone and I, and I surrounded myself with them all the time. So I think as a, uh, teenager, I I got lost amongst my friends. And what do you mean lost amongst your friends? I mean, like I didn't have to like ponder big, lonely questions because I wanted to have fun and laugh with my friends kind of thing. I think I, I used my friends as my first drug to stay out of my head. You know, it was like self-medication through constant hanging out because I didn't start doing drugs until after I became separated from them. Really? How old were you when you started using and looking back, why did you start to use? I started when I was a kid and I would drink, I would get really sick. 
And uh, I would also, you know, like alcoholics do, I would drink to black out. I would, as soon as I started drinking, I would just drink as much as I could. So I would be obliterated. And it was to take myself out of my head. Like I didn't want to be wherever I was. If I was at a party, I think I'd have social anxiety and I would want to drink so I wouldn't have to be uncomfortable. You know, I think that's where it all started. But the alcohol just so didn't suit me and I needed something to take the edge off. So I started smoking weed and I loved it. You know, I started when I was in high school, but I started in college sometime in freshman year. And I honestly smoked every day from then until I was like 41, basically. And then other drugs kind of came in. Like in college, I, I would take psychedelics and I messed around with pills a little bit. And I tried heroin one time in college, but it didn't all come back on me until I was in my early 20s and I was making some money and I would kind of casually do cocaine and heroin and pills and still do psychedelics and still smoke weed every day. But as I became more successful professionally, I really craved the kind of uh, safety of doing heroin, as ironic and stupid as that sounds. Like I, I needed or I really wanted to not think about anything. I wanted to not care about anything. And heroin really uh, gave me that experience. What were you doing professionally at the time? I was working in television. I was hosting a show that not many people were watching and I was producing the show and just trying to build it out and make as much money as I could. It was like I had a, basically it was a, a company called Burley Bear Network, which was a subsidiary of Broadway Video and Broadway Video makes Saturday Night Live. And Burley Bear Network did programming for college kids around the country. And I started there as a production assistant and I would be like a kind of host here and there. And I worked myself up to kind of producing something. And then they asked me if I wanted to try to make a show. And I created a, a music magazine show, which was like a talk show that also showed rock and roll bands or hip hop bands or reggae bands performing or, or we'd show scenes. And it was just really whatever I wanted it to be. It was an amazing experience. And it lended itself to getting high very easily. How so? Well, their big show was a stoner cooking show called Half Baked. And they hired me as a production assistant on it. The show was like a dude would smoke weed and then show college kids how to like make stoner food when he was high. And when they knew how much pot that I was smoking, they asked me to make sure that the guy was properly intoxicated. Like I had to bring weed to the set. I had to make sure he wasn't too high. And if he was too high, I'd have to like give him a sandwich. So like my drug taking was very much embraced by them. And my like wildness was very much embraced by them. And they had no idea that like I was doing heroin on the weekends or that it was way worse than they could have imagined. But as I progressed in the company, I was making more and more money. And I was living in public housing at the time. I was paying like 300 bucks a month and I was making a bunch of money. And I just felt like I had enough money that I could afford to do heroin every day. What does it feel like to be on heroin? Well, you know, there's so many poetic ways to put it. It feels good. It's a painkiller. And I mean, people have different brain chemistries. For my brain chemistry, the first time I took heroin, it made me sick. I got really nauseous. I was like, I don't want to do this again. I just want to smoke weed and be happy. But by the time I did it the second time, it hit me in this way where, and people say this all the time, I knew when I did it that I wanted to feel that way forever. 
more than anything, it gave me an escape from my brain. And I have a very overactive, neurotic, worrying brain. And the heroin made it possible to not care, which is all I ever wanted. Physically, it made me feel euphoric, you know, is incredibly pleasurable. It lets you get lost in your thoughts. It's very dreamy. Time passes and you kind of like, you don't care about anything. You don't care about anything. You don't care about anybody except yourself and whatever you're into. Like if it's food or if it's music or if it's watching TV or if it's women, like you just kind of get honed in on what makes you feel good and that's what you pursue. Or for me, at least it was. So got it. You're young, successful in entertainment and in a career that celebrates and rewards using, but outside of work, it's escalating with the heroin use. What would you say was the height of your using during this period? And what did that look like on a day-to-day basis? How frequently and what is your day-to-day when it comes to usage? Well, my usage was like, at some point, I remember I made a decision that I was going to stay on it, that I was going to get it every day. And uh, in the beginning, you don't need that much, but it quickly escalated for me. And, um, you know, I also did heroin from when I was 23 or 24 until I was 35. So we're talking about 12 years. In the beginning, I guess, the habit got to around $300 a day and I was snorting it. But that changed. You know, I wound up losing my job. Because of the drugs? You lose your job? Yeah. I mean, basically, I was a nightmare. I was a nightmare to work with. I was a nightmare to be around and I couldn't afford to stay high. So it was a pivotal moment in my life where I had to either tell my job or my parents that I was on heroin because I needed to get treatment and I chose to tell my parents and I lied to my job and they fired me because I was in breach of contract. You decide to tell your parents, which ends up being in a hospital room. What were the circumstances that led you to being in that hospital room? What was that rock bottom where you knew it was time to get help? I mean, the funny thing is, or the not funny thing is, that was not close to my bottom. That was my first bottom. And uh, what it was, was I knew I couldn't afford to stay high. You know, I couldn't afford to stay high. And it was too uncomfortable to be sick. I just didn't think that a life of crime was going to work. I I just knew that I couldn't sustain the heroin habit. So I needed to get help because I couldn't handle the withdrawal. So you go to Beth Israel in New York. What is the conversation you have with your parents and what is their reaction? My mother was just aghast. And my father was like, how do we cure him? You know, which is funny and sad considering my life, you know, just went on this roller coaster after that of bottom after bottom after bottom. And the only thing you learn is that there is no cure for this thing. But my dad wanted a cure. My mom was just very disappointed and very upset. And I wasn't ready to stop using drugs. The only thing I didn't want to do is stop using drugs. I just hated being physically dependent on heroin. You know, I think I left that detox and got high the next day or even that night because I wasn't ready, you know, and I, and I wouldn't be ready for a long time. You know, it was just, it was the beginning of leaving a world of, uh, 
high paying work of respect, of love and entering a world of being a, a kind of traditional drug addict, really. And you said not even close to your rock bottom. Walk me through some of the real rock bottoms. I'll give you some of the, the, the greatest hits or the worst moments of the addiction. David's greatest hits, yes. Yeah, basically. I mean, losing that job was the beginning of just pain because that was my dream. I had always wanted to have a, a TV show and I had done it, you know, very young. So that was very disappointing and very painful. And then I, I got a job at, at MTV and I, I was producing something and shooting heroin on the 53rd floor of this building, staring at Central Park South, thinking like, what a fantastic life I had. And I wound up losing that job, stealing every CD at MTV and going down to the East Village to sell all the CDs and buy heroin. And from there, it was just one failure after the next. I don't think I had another real job for years you know, after that, I was just going from outpatient program to detox to methadone as a repeat. You know, it would be outpatient rehab methadone, outpatient rehab methadone. And uh, it was always public. It was always for like a five-day detox. What is the process physically of coming off the drugs in the detox? Yeah, the beginning of it is almost the easiest part because you kind of lock yourself in the house like you're in some movie. It's after, you know, basically you get this terrible diarrhea, you throw up, you have a flu. I mean, I would always get congested. It would be like a fever kind of situation where you just feel as shitty as you can imagine. But it's after that that it really gets bad because even though those symptoms are gone, you feel empty and you know there's one thing that's going to make you feel better. And that's the one thing you're not supposed to do because the second you do it, you're dependent again. You know, the one thing that I learned over a long, long period of time is there is no one use, one drug, one anything. It's all, I mean, for me as a drug addict, when I start using something, I don't stop. You know, I need to be stopped. I stay doing it. I mean, that is my addictness. People say everybody is like that. I can only speak for myself. And my greatest failures and just my life getting really bad was detox, methadone, fucking outpatient until the outpatient was just like, this isn't going to work. He needs to go into a residential treatment. And my parents wound up sending me to this uh, pretty expensive treatment center in Florida. And so now I'm living in South Florida. I have no idea what I'm going to do. And I still just want to use. I wound up relapsing on weed when I was there because I didn't like being sober. How many relapses did you have over those years? Infinite. It's an, an infinite number of relapses. I never got sober. I mean, I never got actually sober. Even when I was uh, in Florida, I was abstinent, but I never found sobriety. Like sobriety is a state of mind, a state of spiritual well-being, and I never got there. I wound up moving to Los Angeles, and that's when things got more bad, <laughs> worse. We'll say worse is more bad. And I lived with friends. I wound up living in a garage. I lived with a girlfriend for years. I was on methadone for six years in Los Angeles. I don't think I had a job for longer than two weeks out there. And I was there for six and a half years. So explain to me how you were abstinent, but you were not, in fact, sober or recovering. 
One, I was on methadone. I was on a very high dosage of methadone. I was also addicted to pills, to benzodiazepines at that point, and still weed. And my mother got diagnosed with leukemia. She thought she was dying. So um, I decided I needed to leave LA. LA was terrible for me anyway. So I, I wound up detoxing off the methadone over a very long period of time and then kicking the rest of the opiates and the benzos, and I moved to the East Coast. And uh, I still smoked weed, and I wound up getting a job at Katz's Deli and trying to find sobriety, but still barely being able to be abstinent. And my mother wound up dying, and I, I met this woman, and we started dating, and within six months, she got pregnant. And I had been off of heroin for like six months, and now she was pregnant. And that's probably when the the biggest bottom happened for me, which was using heroin while my partner was pregnant, using pills while my partner was pregnant, and staying on heroin after the baby was born. That was the biggest bottom I would say I had. And what is the toll during this time on your friends and family, the people you love, your mom, your partner? What would you say the toll is? Well, I feel like with my mother, like... We had a moment when she was dying in the hospital where, you know, I knew she loved me, but like as soon as I kind of turned up on heroin and never got off of it, our relationship was never close to repaired. My friends thought I was going to die. You know, those old friends from when I grew up, they all thought I was going to die and they kind of, they would check in with me here and there. And my father was just so disappointed and he wanted to stay close to me, but it was too painful, you know? The addiction, totally wrecked my relationships. How many years did you use? I mean, all included, probably 17 years or something. Okay. All right. So you've been using for close to two decades. Yeah. A million relapses in and out of rehabs, detoxes, relationships have been harmed, jobs have been lost. You've now been sober, clean and sober, close to five years. Why? What changed... Well, I mean, I think for me, I had a sort of epiphany. I had gotten my life back together and I had partial custody of my daughter and she would spend weekends with me in Manhattan and I was still smoking weed and I was taking pills occasionally, but I wasn't doing heroin. You know, I maintained a job and I had money in the bank and my life felt good, but I was trying to reconcile with my partner and she figured out that I was taking pills. She figured out that I wasn't going to be able to be a good parent if I'm taking Xanax and Clonopin or whatever. And she decided that I was going to lose custody, that she was going to challenge my custody for it. And I got uh, very scared and very frustrated. I found myself in my kitchen in Manhattan writing you know, my ex at that time a letter apologizing for everything I had done but also begging her to let me still smoke weed, that I really wanted to keep that in my life. And I just saw myself, you know, after everything had happened, my mother had died, I had lost my career, I had, you know, I had lost my family, I had lost her and my daughter, and I was alone, and the only thing I cared about was being able to get high. And I, I don't know, I had a moment where I was like, what am I doing? You know, how can that be my priority? And it was as close to a spiritual awakening as I could get. And I wound up going to a 12-step meeting. And I wasn't planning on 
starting my sobriety. And then I, I talked to the kid who had six years and had spoken and he said, oh, so is today your first, going to be your first day? And, I, and I'd never even considered that. I was like, yeah, maybe it is. And then the next morning I woke up and I found a meeting in Chinatown at 7.30 in the morning. And I went to that meeting and I told my story about losing my family and how much I wanted to get my family back. And some dude at the meeting was like, we'd love it if you came back tomorrow. And like nobody had ever said that to me. And I was like, okay. And it turned out that meeting met seven days a week at 7.30 in the morning. And I was like, I can do that. I could go seven days a week. And I started going and they were like, and I had been to a million meetings, but I never did what they suggested. I never worked steps. I never got a sponsor. I never called somebody if I wanted to use. I would always use, like, why would I call somebody? But I wanted a chance to get it. So I was like, I'm going to do what they suggest. I'm going to get a sponsor. I'm going to work the steps. So basically, I, I started taking the steps necessary to change my life. And then I just had this epiphany that if I had used for about 20 years and my life was this, what could my life be like if I didn't use for 20 years? And I started just keeping that in my head. Also, like I had used forever and like I had gotten nothing out of it. I had probably gotten as high as I ever would be. And like, it wasn't that big a deal. So like, what would not using be like? And I wanted to see that. You know what I'm saying? When you say you have this whole new life in front of you, how is it different? What does that feel like? What does that look like? Well, I mean, I got sober and I did what was asked of me. And then I wound up, my partner wound up wanting to reconnect and we got back together and we wound up having another kid. But that was way later. When I first started to get sober, I like wasn't sure that I wanted to be sober and that's when um, basically we started doing this podcast. I was talking to my friend, Chris, who I had met at treatment years before, and I always was working on creative stuff. And he was like, I want to do something creative with you. And I was like, well, we could do a podcast about all the dumb drug stories we have. And he was like, what's a podcast? And I was like, I don't know. And he wound up coming down to my house and, and we wound up just starting to tell drug stories. I was four months clean when we started. You know, so it was the very, very, very beginning. I want to go back to you and Chris meeting. I know you did meet in rehab and you met on a smoking porch at rehab, which apparently is a common place to meet <laughs> in those uh, circumstances. But I think if you can provide a backdrop, because in some of your podcasts, you guys are very funny about the rules and the environment and the, the backdrop of the time that you met. Well, I mean, I met at that bottom that I was telling you about when I was using heroin and I had, and my daughter was a baby and uh, I wound up going to treatment. I had, I had just broken my nose. I had a black eye. I was a mess. And I got to this treatment center in Connecticut and it, I was going for 28 days. And I think Chris had already been there for like four months. You know, he was this very, very uh, young and preppy and handsome dude who like, it was like one flew over the cuckoo's nest and he was like the big chief. He like lived there. <laughs> and I met him where we smoked cigarettes and, you know, we just sort of hit it off. But we didn't hit it off like the way it seems like we did on Dopey. We just would kind of hang out. And then he would like disappear. He was a very, very eccentric person. He would like go into his room for like a week at a time 
and I wouldn't see him or, or like he would like hide out in the kitchen, like not when you're supposed to be there. He was like a, a very much an eccentric, an individual. That was 2011 that we met and then we didn't do Dopey until 2016. So it was five years of both of us relapsing, failing, succeeding. And when we finally started to do it, he was living in Great Barrington, finishing up his bachelor's degree online. And I was a waiter at Katz's Deli in New York. And he would drive down from Great Barrington to record with me. Share with us the voice of Dopey because it's so distinct and was so unique what the two of you created. So explain to listeners who've never heard your podcast, the tone of it and the intention of it and what you guys were hoping to create and share with the world. Well, the idea was, I love making things. You know, like I said, I always wanted to make a TV show. I wanted to be a talk show host. And, you know, we didn't really have an idea. The idea was born for me out of uh, the Howard Stern show. I love the Howard Stern show. I love the way Howard Stern kept me company in the morning. I love the way he talked. I love the way you would eavesdrop on him and his crew as though you were hanging out with your friends. And I wanted to do something like that. And Chris had like the craziest drug stories ever. And I was like, well, why don't we just do a show about the worst things we ever did? And that's it. And then like in, in Chris's mind, it was going to be like, we each tell our worst stories. And then it became this show about recovery I didn't want it to be about recovery at all, but it became about recovery because I felt like if we're telling all these drug stories, it seemed as though we were glorifying using drugs and like we needed to share that we were actually sober. And then like I hated the idea of having a recovery podcast because they're so preachy and uh, sanctimonious and I didn't want Dopey to be like that. And to the recovery piece, you guys... One of the conditions about being on the podcast, I guess, whether it was the two of you or a guest, was that you had to be clean and sober to be recording on the podcast. Another distinguishing feature was that you chose to remain anonymous. I was telling my husband, I'm like, he's like the Bansky of podcasting. No one knows his last name, what he looks like. So the decision to remain anonymous, why? The decision to be anonymous was for a lot of reasons. One, I think it was scary to do a podcast. And like, I know for me, when I make something, you're kind of expected to promote it on your social media. And I think the bottom line for me was that I was on, like most of the people I grew up with that I know through social media, I didn't want them to know all the stuff I had done. And then I didn't want people to Google my last name and see heroin addict. I think the anonymity was like a safety blanket. It made both of us more comfortable. And it also like made it so like we didn't really care because it wasn't really us. You know, it was very safe yeah. and comfortable. I get that. And I want to go back to the tone of the show and the intention of the show, because I think what you guys were doing is balancing the gravity of addiction and how serious and real that is, but infusing it with a lot of levity and humor and self-deprecation and crazy stories that are entertaining and dramatic. And people overwhelmingly responded. Why do you think people were so drawn to talking about addiction and recovery in this way that was infused with 
levity and deprecation and high stake storytelling. And was it cathartic for you, both in the sharing and then in seeing how people received it? The catharsis was was like that people liked it. It was amazing that people liked the show. We I, I didn't think anybody would listen to it. I didn't think I didn't think it would have an impact on anybody. You know, it was fun, but the thing that we came away with was we were keeping addicts company. You know, in the way that Howard Stern had kept me company, the idea was they felt like they were amongst friends. And then the really, really special thing about the show to me was like me and Chris had been friends, but we weren't close friends, you know, when we started the show. We were friends, had met in treatment that talked maybe four times a year for five years. Then we started doing Dopey and we talked every day for the next three. And the show really documented our friendship like becoming a friendship. And it was like, that's the the most beautiful thing about it. And I think that's what really drew people in is that Chris and I had this really good chemistry and uh, I love to make fun of him and he loved to be made fun of. I think for the audience, addicts in recovery feel like they're either fucked or they're saved. And that's not a real accurate depiction of addiction or recovery. And I think there's like an idea that going into sobriety, you're expected to make a 180 degree turn and become some saint who's spiritually grounded and all this stuff, which is just insane because you're the same person that was robbing the grocery store or lying to your friends while you stole from them or whatever. You know, so like to become this whatever spiritual person, this this person who does the next right thing is such a stretch and it's not really talked about. And that was what kept me from sobriety. It's like, how is I going to be a different person? So it's like, I think people felt very safe to hear that kind of talk. It's what they were feeling and what they were thinking. And like they were us and we were them, you know. What about people who were not addicts? Why do you think they were listening to you and Chris and what do you think they were taking away from it? I think it was a couple things. I think uh, me and Chris were funny. Like you could listen to the show. There's some episodes that there wasn't even that much drug talk. It was just really stupid, funny stuff. And I think there's a lot of innocence and Chris is really smart. And like I was decent at speaking and it was uh, it was a great mix. The other thing is that addiction is such a, I mean, the coronavirus is a pandemic, but so is uh, drug addiction. And so many people, if they're not addicts, their kids are addicts or their partner's an addict or their brother's an addict or whatever. So I think that basically so many people are touched by addiction that it gave them a kind of look at what addiction was like or what recovery was like. So summer 2018... So we're going on two years now. You open the podcast by saying, welcome to the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dub shit. The worst thing that ever happened happened. Chris relapsed and died. Tell me about that day, how you got the news experiencing Chris's death, both privately and publicly with your audience. Well, I mean... It's funny or it's not funny, but um, when I found out that Chris had died, I didn't even believe it had happened. And like even going over it now in my head, years later, I mean, I think we're almost two years later, that um, 
it still almost feels like it never really happened. Like it's just, it was such a blow and it was, um, it was like crippling because I, I, he was one of my very best friends. I spoke to him every day. We had built something together that we cared so much about. It was like a, it was traumatizing. I knew that I wasn't going to stop making the show because I had always wanted to have a show. I knew that we had an audience that was going to show up. So what, what? how could I not let them know? And I, And our audience loved Chris, you know, like, I'm pretty certain that our audience really preferred Chris to me. And I just felt like I needed to tell them what happened. And for myself, like I had always wanted to have a show. Our audience had grown. I didn't want to give it up. You know, like I didn't want to stop making the show. I never really accepted that the show was helping people, even though I know that it did. I needed to make the show. I loved making it and I didn't want to stop making it selfishly. And when Chris died, explain, because you didn't know he was using, I think he had gone back to school to be a doctor to treat the very affliction that killed him. Yeah. So explain that, where you were in your friendship and what you knew about your friend and his well-being. Well, it was pretty awful because basically I felt as though him and I were drifting apart and he was losing interest in the show and it didn't even occur to me that he was relapsing. So when his girlfriend called me and told me that he had died, I didn't even know that he was using. Although as soon as she told me, it was pretty easy to remember everything that had led up to that moment. And I just was blind. You know, I was in denial. And when Chris died, I know that he was Catholic and there was a massive service at a Catholic church in Boston, packed full, and that messages were read from listeners all around the world. What are some of the things that people said about Chris or that it's important for you that people know about Chris and who he was? Chris was very special. He was uh, super magnetic and um, he was just incredibly lovable. And his stories brought him to the edge of the earth and back you know, with his intellect in, intact and, and he had this innocence and this charm and uh, people were crazed when they found out that he died. It was at a, a like a basically a Catholic cathedral in Boston and the priest said that they had never had an outpouring like that and it was from all over the world and basically people just thanked him for making them feel less alone and thanked him for sharing his story and sharing his soul with them because that's what he did, you know. Because we had been anonymous, because Dopey was very much secret identities, in that scenario where all of this public Dopey stuff was coming out, it was like almost waking up from a dream into a nightmare. And uh, I mean, I, I I had just changed sponsors when Chris had died. And I was a mess and I and I told my new sponsor what had happened. And my sponsor was very callous about it. And he said, well, that was Chris carrying the message in the end, you know? And as callous as, and I was like, fuck you, whatever. But in the end, he's right. I mean, Chris, that, I, I mean, this, I still have epiphanies about it to this day that he was, you know, using fentanyl. He was using lethal chemicals and it killed him. And that's what can happen. You know, I I had used drugs like almost 20 years. I never really considered that I could die. And I don't think Chris ever considered that he could die. There was a foreshadow on one of the episodes that in hindsight was picked up by the media as very eerie. Can you share that? 
There was a lot of foreshadowing. He was always kind of hung up on what our relapse would look like. And I think he said on the hundredth episode, what's probably going to happen is one of us is going to get injured and get a prescription for pain meds and wind up relapsing on opiates and overdosing. And he went on vacation, hurt his leg, got a prescription. The story is he went on vacation with his girlfriend and he was working out and he was trying to impress her with a karate kick and he kicked too high and he pulled a ligament or tendon in his leg and uh, he was in a lot of pain and he wanted to medicate it. But I don't know because we never had the conversation. I knew he was in pain. You know, this is just one of those things where like communication would have saved his life. But the two of us were both so busy. He had just finished up the master's portion. He had just gotten a new apartment with his girlfriend. Dopey was taking off. He had just gotten an internship. I mean, on the show, he often said that he was going to way less meetings. I think he got very disconnected from everybody and he didn't ask for help, you know, and because he, it's like as much as you know that drugs kill people, to connect the dots is not a straight line, you know? And I don't think like now you look at it and it's like, of course it's a straight line, but I don't think he thought by winding up on pain meds that he could die eventually or soon after, you know, which is what happened. I imagine it took a lot of courage to record by yourself without Chris. And I would presume an experience of maybe deep loneliness. I'm putting words into your mouth here. But what was that transition? You're talking to him every day. You guys are in this together. You pick up the microphone. There is nobody next to you. What did it take? And how do you think Dopey changed after Chris's death? Well, it was very lonely. You know, we had often talked about other podcasters who do their shows alone. And it always struck me as a very lonely thing to do if you're doing it by yourself. And when Chris died, I didn't want to stop making the show. I I couldn't replace him. And I just said, I mean, I said it on the show and I said it to Linda, my partner. I said it to my friends was that I'm going to make the show until it sucks or it's really boring or it's no fun. You know, one of those things. And for a little bit, it was all those things. It sucked. It was a little bit boring and it was no fun. And Linda, my partner, was like, well, the show can't always be fun. Chris died. Drug addiction isn't always fun. But for me, I didn't want to make a podcast that wasn't fun. There was no point. You know what I mean? Like the stuff that I liked about the show was like the ice cream he wanted to buy or or the food I wanted to eat or any of the stupid things that we had done. And I knew that that stuff was what made Dopey so special. And I just tried to keep that alive. And I, I did my best by rotating friends and stuff. And I think the message of the show changed too because the audience was Chris. The audience was relapsing all the time. So like I had to change the tenor of the show because I couldn't do anything else besides to tell people to be careful because before that I was in denial as stupid as it sounds that drugs actually kill people all the time because I had been around it forever and no one had died. Same with Chris. And now everyone was dying and I needed the message of the show to include that it's very dangerous. And that, and also the other piece of the show that we had always really loved, the real message of Dopey is that you can be in recovery and still be cool and still have fun. 
that life can be funny without using. And I, I wanted to maintain that message that, yes, Chris died, but life has to go on. And there's no sense in being sober if you can't have a good time. Like, I don't think there's any point to living if you're going to live miserably. Yeah, it was so evident in your conversations and your energy, just how freaking fun it all was. I appreciate that. <laughs> it is. It's really good. How many friends have you lost to addiction? Well, I mean, I take my friendships really seriously. I guess I, I, I've lost a handful, you know, and they were all through Dopey, though. Like maybe I'd lost a guy I had met in treatment years before and uh, he was a mess and he died. But like I was around drugs for almost 20 years and nobody died. So like it wasn't until I was years sober that I had friends start dying. So I'd say five, five friends and it was all after I got sober. In both addiction and grief, how do you climb out of a bottomless hole? That's a good question. I think what occurred to me, and I think it occurred to me when my mother died, was you don't ever get over something. You just kind of get used to it, which is also how recovery worked for me. You don't get over the drugs. You get used to not having them. I feel like I had my run with the drugs. I miss my friends. I miss my mother. But it's all about just living. I mean, as you know, trying to live your best life, trying to enjoy yourself, trying to look out for people, take care of your family. Like that's the only way I think you can deal with grief. And this, I don't know if this is um, a reasonable question or a ridiculous question. So you tell me, but what do you think is at the root of most addictions, drug addictions? I don't know. I can't answer that question. I mean, because like people have a million theories about it. Like people say it's all from trauma. People say, you know, I think everybody who becomes a drug addict struggled. The feeling of being within their skin, being themselves, it made them uncomfortable. It's a mix of things. You feel uncomfortable being yourself and then you really enjoy a substance, you know, or a thing. You know, it's like a perfect storm that kind of turns you into this thing, this sick person. What does your practice of recovery look like today? Well, it's is it pre-corona or current corona is the difference. I mean, before the coronavirus, I went to, you know, like between one and three meetings a week. I called my sponsor a few days a week. Dopey became a huge part of my recovery because I interact with a ton of addicts all over the world. I was curious about that. What role Dopey plays in your ongoing recovery and healing? So I'm glad I'm glad you answered that. In this time of COVID and isolation and stress and anxiety, I can only fathom the impact it is having on millions of people who are in recovery. What do you know about that? And yeah, I, I guess I'm curious the impact that it's having because you're so obviously tapped in and connected. It seems like this era is affecting everybody in a similar way. You know, everybody's bored. Everybody's alone. People with kids are up to their eyeballs with their kids. I feel very connected to this period because it reminds me so much of drug addiction. It reminds me so much of early recovery where you don't know when you're going to have a job. You don't know when you're going to be part of society. You don't know 
like what's going to happen next. Like you feel, I mean, I know that every time I got sober or got off of drugs, I felt like this, like that the world had stopped only it was so painful because back then the world hadn't stopped and only my world had stopped. I can't help but think that this thing, this COVID period should be an opportunity for people because they can get their shit together while everything is totally falling apart and nobody would even notice that they were a mess. Are you ever afraid of relapsing? I think in theory, I'm very afraid of relapsing. I'm scared of it in in theory. Thank God I'm not close to using. Like, uh, I'm not interested in using. It doesn't, like, there's no allure of it. I'm starting to get weird sort of desires to smoke cigarettes, but that always kind of comes around. So I'm not afraid of relapse at the moment because I really... I really like my life way more like this. I know what would happen if I used. If I used, everything would fall apart. Like my family wouldn't eat. I would lose them. I would be alone. I would be miserable and I wouldn't be able to afford getting high. It's just something I can't do. One thing you've said about the show, which I wanted to ask you, you said, Dopey will always have drug stories. It will always be about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. But my favorite dumb shit is what happens in recovery and living sober as a drug addict. It's like a murderer working in a hospital. What did you mean by this? I have I have no idea. It doesn't make any sense. It made no sense to me either. That's why I asked you. It's like a murder. <laughs> oh, I guess the idea is like, I think the idea was because I had done, you know, I was a, a heroin addict for so many years and I was, a, you know, a chronic relapser and a drug addict. Like, how could I be the person who's the ambassador of recovery? That was the idea. Got it, got it, okay. But it was not a good quote, especially in (laughs) retrospect. That quote did not age well. Uh, I'm just going to be honest. I agree. I was like, what the fuck is he trying to say? But I was thinking if I asked you, you may have this, like, answer that would be like, ah, now I get it. it's not not a good quote. (laughs) Where was that quote from? I don't know. I'll look. I think it was the vice piece. Vice, yeah. I think it was the vice piece. What is the one thing that everyone should know about addiction? It kills you. It can kill you. You know, it can take everything from you and you have nothing left. And it's very seductive while it does it. What is your hope for the future of the Dopey podcast? I mean, the truth is I want Dopey to be like gigantic. Like I want it to be like Regis and Kathy Lee. Like I want it to be like a morning show with musical guests and Eric Clapton comes on and fucking, you know, Andrew Zimmern shows us how to cook stew. And it's like, just like a ridiculously, you know, Robert Downey Jr. is telling his greatest hits, you know, waking up in kids' beds and like, you know, just the biggest talk show that it could be while still being real and punk rock and fun and accessible. And I would love it to make it so I don't have to work at Katz's, you know? I think my biggest hope for Dopey is that it became my full-time job. Tell me about your life today. I have two kids and I have my beautiful partner and we live in this house in uh, Suffolk County, New York. And I kind of run strategic partnerships and catering at Katz's, which I kind of invented the position, which I'm very proud of. And uh, I have a ton of friends and I'm close with my dad, who's on the show all the time. And uh, I'm close with a, like a, a pretty big contingency of the audience. And I'm close with a bunch of people in recovery. And, um, you know, mostly I just do what I'm told. Like I try to do what my sponsor tells me and I really try to do what Linda tells me. 
And I try to be the best father and husband and friend and whatever, podcaster, caterer. And it's all because I stopped doing drugs. It's the only reason my life is so good. What is the greatest lesson that Chris taught you? That this thing could kill you. You know, that's easily the greatest lesson that he could teach me because it's so profoundly sad. And like, rather than remembering conversations we had, I remember that he died randomly and totally unexpectedly because he was dishonest, basically, you know, and I don't want to, I don't judge Chris in any kind of negative way. It's just, I feel like that was his undoing that he could not be honest and it killed him. And it's like, that's the biggest lesson from the whole thing. What do you think he would be doing if he was here today? I think he'd definitely be doing the show with me. He'd be loving the coronavirus because he'd get to sit at home and eat ice cream and watch Star Trek. He would be in school, you know, pursuing the letters after his name. Like his big dream was that he was going to be like a Dr. Drew type. And Dopey was going to be like Dave and Dr. Chris. That was his big dream. What is the greatest lesson your addiction has taught you about yourself? I mean, I, what I learned is that I could ruin my life and I learned that I could get it back. You know, there are two huge lessons. Like I didn't realize that no matter what I was doing, I don't think I ever thought that I could ruin my life. And I learned that I could. And then as bad as my life had gotten, I don't think I ever thought that I could fix it. And I did. And I think that spectrum is is the most important thing that anybody thinks about with their life, that you can do anything, good or bad. You know, like it just requires consistency and effort and care. I think that's the biggest thing I learned. Thank you, David. That was awesome. And yeah, I'm really going to be excited to share this. So we end our show with a little something called Rapid Fire. I love that. Yeah. You know the drill. You're a podcaster. I love Rapid Fire. Okay. I should do more rapid fire. You stuff. should. You should start immediately. All right. First question. Favorite British podcast host? Kimi. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite meal in New York City? Fuck. I don't know. Um, uh, let's say Vanessa's duck sandwich on the crazy fresh sesame bread. Vanessa's dumpling house. All time dopey podcast dream guest. It was Artie. We got him. Now the all-time dopey dream guest. Fuck. Isn't that so weird that I don't even have one? Maybe Keith Richards, but I think he would be a dick to me on the show. Keith. It'd be Keith. That could make for good podcasting. You know what? You know who? I'll tell you. My all-time dream dopey guest is Bob Dylan. That's a good one. That's huge. I would just want to get him to be normal. That's I would do anything I could to make Bob Dylan be normal. All right. I'm going to see if there's anything I can do to make it happen. I'm pretty sure there is not, but I'm going to I would try. take Keith too. I would take Keith. I would take David Crosby. I would take uh, Nikki Six. Like I would get a kick out of that. I would love Boy George. Like I think that would be great. For some reason, I feel like you can get Nikki Six. I think no, I that can't. be your... You can't. Why? He's like... The dude, he just ignores... I, you, you don't understand. I write everybody constantly. So he's not coming. Nikki Six has never bit. But if you can help, please. All right. Know, I'll ask Reach around. out to Nikki. Your audience should reach out to Nikki. <laughs> please reach out to Nikki and Bob on, on behalf of the Dopey Podcast. Flava Flav, I would love. I would love Whoopi Goldberg. 
Whoopi Goldberg, I would love. She'd be good. She'd be good. What have you learned while homeschooling two children during a global pandemic? Enjoy your family. It's like, as much as I love to complain about my family, uh, they're the best. You know, uh, they allow me to be the best version of myself and uh, I love them and I love uh, homeschooling my 10-year-old. It's like, I feel so much pride and joy sitting with her and learning with her. It's my, it's like, as much as I hate feeling like I can't do what I want, I love it more than anything. In 10 years, I hope to be. Just staying the course, you know, happy, joyous and free and rich and incredibly famous. Very famous, very rich and friends with Bob Dylan and Nikki Six. Totally. I don't need to be friends with Nikki Six. I just, I have this feeling that he would be a great dopey guest. I'm not a Motley Crue fan. There's just something about him. His stories are insane. Have you ever seen the Motley Crue behind the music on VH1? I have not seen that. Oh, you got to watch it. It's insane. All right. Where can we find you? Learn about the podcast, anything else you're up to in the world. I would love for all of our listeners to check out the Dopey Podcast. So let us know how. It's available wherever your podcasts are available. iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, whatever. Check it out at dopeypodcast.com. Dave, David, Dopey Dave, thank you so much. Be well. I hope you heal quickly from Corona and stay sane and also enjoy this time at home with your family. Thank you, Kimmy. I really appreciate it. You are awesome. Right on. Okay. Talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. Bye. Many of our guests have asked to support COVID charities at this time. And Dave is one of those people. Today's episode supports HIP, Hispanics and Philanthropy with Farm Workers Pandemic Relief Fund. I know that's a mouthful, but here's what they are doing. There are somewhere between two and three million farm workers around our country, and they are some of the hardest hit by this pandemic. The relief fund, including the donation on behalf of Dave, will go directly to the farm workers and their families so they can have basic needs like groceries or pay for their medical bills. They've also teamed up with famous fashion designer Mario De La Torre, and I may have pronounced that wrong, to sew tens of thousands of masks so that the farm workers and the medical providers that treat them remain safe during this time. We will include a link where you can learn more about their efforts, make a donation, and we will also, of course, include a link so you can check out the Dopey Podcast. Thanks to you, our listeners, and thanks to you, David, for making the time to entertain and inspire us today. Be well. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick. And our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read our show notes, or get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at All the Wiser Podcast. Send us a note. We would love to hear from you. And as always, thanks for listening. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. 
Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.